0: But, uh, question, everyone. So, first, very quickly, I would like to convey my regards to uh, Rajiv Malhotra, Professor Karnan, and Mishalini and the organizing team for this uh, wonderful program. Uh, very quickly about myself, since we are short on time, uh, I'm passionate about Sanskrit and political philosophy. I've done my master's in IT and work as a software developer at Sydney. I also do my honors in Sanskrit from the University of Sydney, and my project, I'm working on the commentary on the Panchatantra, apart from my regular job, and those are some personal details. Uh, so this is what we'll try to cover in this session: uh, whether Sanskrit was responsible for the Holocaust, that is the key question, um, and what uh, the, the link between Sanskrit and Nazism actually becomes possible through applying the Orientalist framework. So we'll consider British Orientalism, German Orientalism, and what. Pollock sees as pre-Oriental Orientalism, which is Sunset Orientalism, and finally his views on the future of Indology, which I have classified under uh, American Orientalism. Okay, so uh, now one thing you have to note is, uh, nowhere does Pollock express expressly state that the purpose of his essay is to draw a link between Sunset and, or to connect Sunset with Holocaust. This is what, however, becomes evident as we go through the essay. Like any reasonable reader would draw this conclusion ha- uh, somehow. And uh, I mean, the way the process would work is like this. Pollock uh, repeatedly points out that Sanskrit was the principal discursive instrument of domination in pre colonial India. And British and German Indology basically recapitulated, and that's the key word, they recapitulated the character of the Sanskrit discourse of power. And then British Indology obviously colluded with uh, co- with the colonial regime in India, that is the British Raj. And German Indology developed the Indo-Aryan versus Semite uh, discourse. And that ultimately consummated in Nazism, which was responsible for the war and Holocaust. Um, other, other ways in which he sort of subliminally um, expresses uh, this connection is he refers to anti-Jewish laws during the Nazi regime as Shastric codifications and he kind of proposes that we should, um, in in the study of Indian culture, we should be studying Arya the way uh, the German Arya is uh, is studied or the restrictions on Shudras should be understood as analogous to the Arya Paragraphin which is the restrictions on the Jews in the Nazi regime and uh, the historicist writer, which refers to the historical dispute with regards to Nazi historiography as to whether the Nazi period should be historicized or should not be historicized. And, and, and uh, Paula takes the view that it should, not be, uh, it should not be historicized. And similarly, with regards to uh, Sanskrit also, he says that we should not be historicizing uh, the and so on. And whatever Manu may have said should not be read in this historical context but should be seen as something that is eternally valid. Uh, so uh, basically so that was what he's trying to say but uh, the way he's trying to justify his position is by what he calls the uh, comparative morphology of domination. And so the... Uh, Orientalist framework, which is what is currently applied to uh, Anglo-French Indology and Anglo-French colonialism, gets extended to the German and the Sanskrit case. But even if you just look at this diagram, you can see the problem evident here. Because the British Raj, uh, as soon as it, it um, it took control in Bengal, it sponsored British Indology. British Indology begins after British rule. And it, and it was done, um, I mean, it was explicitly uh, created for understanding Indian uh, doctrines and Indian customs and so on, so that the Indian subjects could be effectively governed. Whereas in, if you look at the German case, German Indology likewise begins in the early 19th century and so on, but the Nazi period is something you find for about 10 years in, from 1933 to 1945. And in case of the Sanskrit uh, knowledge, we don't even have we don't even know what power we are talking about here. So we have this very evasive and laconic term, pre-colonial forms of domination. So there are, which kind of means like the Hindu ruling elites right from time immemorial. Uh, so this uh, kind of thing. So we will go through each one of them quickly. Uh, so British Orientalism, we have to consider exactly how uh, he extends the framework of Orientalism from its current Situation to include German Indology as well as Sanskrit knowledge. So Orientalism, as you understand it, is a nexus between the European knowledge of Asia and the colonial domination of Asia. And what he's saying is that um, in order to accommodate German Indology, because uh, uh, the Germans are having created a great corpus of works in Indology, uh, if we have to accommodate that within this framework, then we have to understand that the vector of domination is multidirectional, and so German Indology has an inward vector of domination. It actually was directed at the colonization of Europe itself. And in order to understand Sanskrit knowledge as orientalist, we can read it as a discourse of power that divides the world into betters and lessers. So this betters and lessers is also a, a, a Said's term. Um, so what he then accomplished is basically a trans-historicization of <laughs> Orientalism. That is, Orientalism is removed from its historical context and is made universally applicable. So now how valid is, is all this? I mean, sorry, about that, uh, Pollock has duly apologized for that. I mean, he said that, yes, that is not a good thing to do, but but we will lose something much greater if we do not accommodate all this within Orientalism. So now how valid is all this? Um, so The first understanding of Orientalism that we have is basically just an instance of Orientalism. Now, Said has provided various definitions of Orientalism, and he says that they are all interdependent. And the second definition that you see here is the more conceptual understanding that Said has provided of the term, which is that it is representative, authoritative knowledge of Asia produced by Europeans from a position of superiority. All such knowledge is classified as Orientalist. You don't have to go and actually dominate over someone. Like You don't have to actually colonize people using this knowledge to classify it as Orientalist. So German Indology really does not need to be accommodated. Like I mean, saeed has never apologized for that. Because from his perspective, German in, like when the Germans wrote about India or the rest of Asia, they did write it in a representative, authoritative fashion from a position of authority. So from his model, it is already Orientalist, you don't have to do this, take this special, make this special change in order to accommodate it. And similarly with the term better than lessers, that is basically applied to post-colonial societies where the colonial discourse still prevails even after independence and westernized elites see, think of themselves as better to the uh, native population. So that's what he means by better than lessers. So we can see here a manipulation of the Orientalism concept of Said in order to to evolve Sanskrit Sanskrit knowledge as Orientalists. But having said that, there are a couple of problems I think with the concept of Orientalism itself that we need to consider, which is that, is it a problem of epistemology or is it a problem of power? And both Said and Paul see it as a problem of power. But I think it would be more advisable for us to see it as a problem of epistemology. That is, knowledge produced by Europe about Asia or India is Orientalist because they are using Eurocentric, christocentric frameworks to study India. And if we see that way, that we can see that even after independence, Orientalism still continues because the same, like I mean, different frameworks but still European are used for the study of Indian texts. And the other thing is, uh, I don't think we should get too carried away with Said's Orientalism, because I finally think that this book was the outcome of his Palestinian activism, and about uh, how um, the Americans were representing Arabs and uh, the Palestinians in the media, and about their support for Israel and so on. So, um, I mean, uh, I mean, we should. I I don't think. I mean, Orientalism is like a double-edged sword in that sense, and you know. Uh, we'll move to German Orientalism. Now, as we said, German Orientalism is basically a collusion between German Indology and Nazi regime. That is how he's presented it. Now, there are various ways to dispute this collaboration that Pollock uh, <coughs> has proposed. So first of all, I think Grunda has written an excellent article disputing the logic and all the facts that Pollock uh, has presented. Uh, we can then say that, oh, well, we are not really interested in this collaboration. What we want to know is if the racism in German Indology comes from Sanskrit or not. And even that has been disputed by Thomas Strautman and Edwin Bryant, who have shown quite well how um, uh, racism was actually read into the text by Max Müller and so on, rather than the other way around. So because all this work has been done, I've just given a reference to that. Uh, and I've adopted basically a different tactic which is to show that both German indology and Nazi regime need to be considered in their respective context because the context is removed and these partic- these two strands are put in isolation that's why it seems like as if it, it, these two things are sort of um, uh, influencing each other but I think if you see the infl- if you see the overall context you can see that it's a much much complicated picture So we look at both these points, here, uh, yeah. so first of all, racial anti-Semitism. Uh, uh, so, uh, anti-Semitism in Europe uh, again, uh, yeah. Uh, Anti-Semitism in Europe begins with the pagan, begins right from the pagan times, uh, because of the Jewish uh, unwillingness to accept the Roman god, uh, uh, Roman emperor as the god, and participate in the cults of the city. Uh, it moves on to Christian uh, pagan, uh, Christian anti-Semitism because of the killing of God and so on. But what we are interested in is the Enlightenment racism, which begins with, sort of, which begins with Voltaire and so on, who uh, extended their hatred for the church to Judaism and saw that it is the Indian Brahmins who created the true knowledge. And this was then plagiarized by the Jews and so on. So hatred for so this whole uh, juxtaposing the Jew against the Indian and so on is, is something that starts actually with Enlightenment. And uh, then we have Earn, uh, then we have these two Frenchmen, uh, Ernst Haeckel, who uh, Arianized Jesus. Uh, we have Gobineau, who came, <coughs> who contributed to the development of the race theory, which then spread to Germany, where it was taken up by Richard Wagner and Chamberlain. Uh, then we have ideas of social Darwinism spreading in the 19th century as well. Uh, but I think it's Ernest Haeckel, who is one of the chief German um, uh, thinkers on social Darwinism. And then you have to also consider the cost of Jewish emancipation, which happened uh, from the 18th century onwards. Now, what Jewish emancipation means is that, initially during the Christian period, they were, these people were kept isolated, they were outside, so they were like the outsiders. But then with enlightenment, it was uh, the idea was to get them inside society to make them part of the mainstream. However, I mean, Jews were accepted, but not their doctrines and their customs, which were seen as backward. And what happens is that, that the Jews did not want to give like they were happy to participate in the mainstream, they did quite well, but they were not willing to give up their Jewish identity, their Jewish cu- culture, and so on. And as a consequence, uh, from object outsiders, they became abject insiders. Like when you have something on the out, when you have some people on the outside, they can be tolerated. But when these people are brought into the inside and then they become, uh, and then you're not happy with them, or then when, if there is despise towards them, then it eventually leads to their extermination. Uh, and the other point I want to make is that uh, besides the Indo-Aryan, uh, or the Indo-Aryan versus Semite discourse is actually part of the much greater Nordic versus Semite discourse. And that's what the fundamental form it, is. Uh, it takes. So this is basically the context in which German Indology is coming about. And these are like the various fact influences that can be had on it, apart from the Sanskrit text that they were studying, none of which is considered by Pollock, as a result of which it it, it appears that before these people, since these factors are not considered, we say that, oh, then in that case it must be from the Sanskrit text that they must have got their racism. Uh, similarly with Nazism, uh, Again, we have to consider the problem of historical stride, which is, as I said, um, it's actually a debate between functionalists and intentionalists. That is, the intentionalists proposed that it is Nazi ideology that was responsible for uh, the war and genocide, whereas the functionalists claim that that is not the case and we have to study Nazi regime in its historical context. So relate the war and genocide to other uh, such things that were happening like the Soviet Kulak genocide, the Armenian Genocide uh, and then there is the idea of cumulative radicalism which says that uh, Hitler was like a weak and lazy dictator. The Nazi government itself was very chaotic and competitive and therefore this um, each was trying to outdo the other and that sort of um, spiraled out of control into war and genocide. Then we have the Sonderweck thesis as well, which says that, again, war and genocide happened because the the process of German modernization was quite different from that of the English and the French. And um, um, then, uh, as I said, uh, I mean, sorry, uh, as I said, uh, German colonialism, uh, Germany had, uh, I mean, its colonialism is not that uh, big as uh, English and French, but... But um, they had some colonies in Africa, and we had the Herero and the Nama genocides taking place in 1904 or 07, and this also can be uh, seen as influential for the Nazi war and genocide. Uh, what, so this is basically um, uh, what uh, I think it's Fitzpatrick uh, who has uh, like it's from his paper that I've derived this uh, knowledge. Uh, what he suggested is that what colonialism, in, 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 a, in a colonialism you can basically get a hierarchical racism which is that the rulers think of themselves as superior to the rule uh, because of the race to which they belong but then you get the problem of the mixed blood and then it's not clear as to whether where does this person belong and it sort of um, ends up bridging this gulf between the two and therefore hierarchical racism leads to biological Racism as well, which is that, which is to say that uh, these are inherited traits, and therefore they should not be a commingling between the ruler and the ruled, and so on. And this uh, kind of attitudes were then exported back to Europe in all colon, in all the um, uh, in, in England, France, as well as Germany and everywhere. But only in Germany it produced a disaster of war and uh, genocide because of the defeat in the First World War and the loss of colonies as a result of which the aggressiveness, which was part of this culture, was then directed in words. So it was rather than saying it was uh, some kind of an orientalism, if you can see these various factors, and, and, and all this study has been done, but none of which has been considered by uh, Pollock. And if you look at all this, uh, I mean, the Nazi historiography literature is huge, and none of them have ever considered that, oh, this Sanskrit knowledge is something that could have possibly contributed to this. Uh, we can move to Sanskrit Orientalism quickly. So here, basically, Pollock has a problem with the post-colonialists because the post-colonial view is that uh, Sanskrit texts, basically the Dharmashastras, received a new lease and legitimacy under colonial rule and became hegemonic. They were not hegemonic before. Uh, prior to this, uh, the, there were Dharmashastras, but along with that, along with that. Uh, During the interpretation of law one had to also take into account customs, there was the royal prerogative and royal discretion and and so on and all that was omitted and only the dharmashastras whose um, view it was actually to uh, recommend duty or obligation in the sense of dharma for religious and spiritual merit were actually treated as if they were law. And the philosophy of law here is different uh, in case of India and uh, the West, where in the West law takes the form of coercion or force, law is the legitimate instrument of coercion in society. Whereas in case of uh, India, dharma was as a segment more for, uh, for teaching duty and that was elevated to the status of law during the British rule. Now Pollock's problem is that he says, well, look, uh, this kind of new lies, life, with lifeless and legitimacy were, also happened during the time of the Dharmanibandhas, and the Dharmanibandhas, he says, were composed from the 12th century onwards in the response to the Muslim, or he doesn't say Muslim, of course, he says Turkish invasions or Central Asian invasions. Um, and, uh, so, and, and basically what happened in the colonial times was a repeat of that, which is to say that when India is invaded by foreigners, then you know, this sort of discourse comes up and if it, it happened during the Muslim invasion, it also happened during the British invasion. And the other problem he raises is, um, uh, that, um, uh, is that these people who say that, oh, the British did something very different, they have not studied done a study of the pre-colonial forms of domination. Uh, With regards to the former, as I said, uh, we can say that uh, the Dharma has come under the general Bhashya and Nibandha genre, genre, which was was started in the 9th century, Uh, and uh, so it was not in response to the Turkish invasion, and uh, as far as pre-colonial forms uh, of domination, he's given the example from Latamani, but I will not go into that because I think we are running short of time. Well, the main thing I want to say is that the issue to consider here is how the British invasions basically transformed our understanding of law and and this misinterpretation actually gave birth to the so-called anglo-indian law which we have today uh, finally uh, American Orientalism I will just I'll forget I I'll need that uh, I just speak on some of the important points so uh, so, what I, so basically, in the, in the last section of his paper, Pollock has basically mentioned uh, some of the problems currently in Indology and his solutions to them. Uh, I'll just focus on the solutions and the issues. Uh, so first of all, he's saying that uh, our scholarship should give priority to marginal, invisible and the unheard. And what is wh- why he's saying this is because there is basically a problem of objectivity, which is that um, there is no such thing as a fact-based, value-free scholarship all, uh, you know, you cannot uh, remove values from your scholarship and therefore they should be directed towards the study of these marginal, invisible and unheard people. Uh, Which is basically to say that your scholarship will always be biased, it will always be prejudiced. So keep it biased in favour of those who are lowly and so on. Because if you are, um, if you say that, no, but my scholarship is not biased, I'm I'm coming here through a completely objective uh, with a completely objective attitude, what he would say is that, yeah, but then the, the thing is you're blind to the dominant ideology. So there's always this dominant ideology and so it is, uh, and the, 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 the way you can be safe is if you direct your scholarship uh, to, uh, for the upliftment of these marginal, invisible people now uh, basically that is an I, uh, I, I read it as a license for ideological scholarship then you can just justify you know uh, uh, scholarship and you don't have to li- basically uh, use facts and logic to prove your point because you're saying oh it's a morally sensitive scholarship so it works uh, and then this, the other problem is that where is I mean uh, he is going to read uh, these marginal voices from ancient texts but where are these voices to be found uh, he also says that all these voices have been completely screened out by the dominant culture. So basically this, this whole um, uh, uh, strategy will take the form of denigrating the classical culture which at, uh, which apparently has uh, uh, screened out these voices and then the other thing is that contemporary liberal voices would then be read back into what, so you might say well, you know uh, this is what Sita says in the Ramayana but in my reading Sita says that and Sulpanaka says that and that should be qualified as Scholarship because it is morally sensitive. So uh, uh, the other thing, other problem I would like to raise is the last one, the problem of historicization. Uh, historic should be historicized or should be not historicized is itself an an issue. But what I would like to point out is the politics of historicization, which is to say that some things are historicized, other things are not. So, for example, if it comes to Islamic rule, we will say yes, we will historicize it. We will see it in this historical context. When it comes to Brahmanical oppression of Shudras in ancient times, we will not historicize that. So apart from the historicization problem, there is this politics of what should and should not be historicized is also there. Uh, okay, since if this time I'll just take one more point. the uh, Avoiding third worldism, which is basically uh, saying that um, the traditions are also empires of oppression in their own right. And so um, um, the problem. Uh, I mean, we'll say, and, and this view, I think, encourages Western interventionism because, and because he's suggesting that through the production of atrocity literature and so on, if, we, if there is sufficient ground and we see oppression happening, then we should be intervening here. So that I think is about that. So I mean, basically, i want to recap all this. Uh, I'll just uh, take the last point, which is. Uh, If there's anything to take out of this this whole paper, it is the question of whether Indology. And he has, uh, I mean, he's looking at the problems from the Western perspective, but I think it encourages us to look at it from the Indian perspective and to see, considering our position today in a global milieu, and we are a Westernized people, whether we like it or not, we're living according to, to the... We are living in political arrangements derived from Western theory and so on, whereas all the knowledge that we are talking about was created in a radically different mind view. So, how do we now interpret it and make it meaningful for, in our case today, uh, understand it in cognitively interesting ways? How can we do that? And that really should be the challenge that we can take from this paper. And then, that's it. Thank you.